Thanks for reading the Bible to us, David. Uh, yeah, my name's Martin. It's a privilege to be up here and to talk about what David has read. And so we're in a series about the church, we're calling it home. The idea that church is a home for God and a home for people. But before I talk, I want to pray and ask God to help us. Um, Father, we ask that um, you would do something that no one can manufacture, that you would speak to each of our hearts. Father, we recognise that um, we can never create a situation to overwhelm a person's will. And that's what you don't, you don't call us to do that, but to invite you to speak. God, I thank you that you're real. And I ask in, in this moment that we share together, I thank you that this moment is full of hope and possibility. And I ask that you would speak in a way that makes you undeniable to those who know you and those of us who wonder if you exist. God, we thank you for what this passage of the Bible says about what we're called to do as, as a church. And so we ask that you would speak in Jesus' name. Amen. So yeah, this is a series on the nature of the church, this week and next week. We said church is a home for God and a home for people. And this part of this letter is focusing on the next big idea that one of the main things the church is called to do is pass our faith on to the next generation. Some people use the word disciple the next generation. And I don't know, when you hear something like that, a lot of us instinctively think this is about parenting. You know, um, the raising and training of kids, that's for parents and schools. And so you think, this is not for me. So maybe you might, it's a Western thing that we think that. You might instinctively think, look, if I'm older, if um, I'm single, if I don't have kids, this isn't for me. But that's not how the Bible understands the bringing up of the next generation. It's like the idea of, um, it takes a village to raise a child. Does it make sense? So in the Bible, there's this idea that people are born into a community, a larger. Actually, the letter you just heard read was written by a childless single man called Paul, and he addressed it, verse 2, to Timothy, my dear son, my beloved child. So there's this idea in the Bible, if I'm contributing to someone's life, nurturing them, building them up, passing on this faith, I have a level of responsibility to them. So this is the last letter that Paul wrote that we have. He's writing from prison, the worst prison he was at. And he's writing to his protege, Timothy. Now, I don't know what you would write if you knew your death was imminent. We know shortly after this letter, he was taken out of the prison he was in, formally charged for sedition against Rome for his beliefs that Jesus returned from the dead and beheaded, about 65, 70 AD. And, and it's not the first letter he's written from prison. He, letters like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, he wrote from other prisons. There was um, one situation where he was under house arrest. It was like a rented home. There was a soldier with him all the time, but much more access to people could come and go. This was different. He was placed in... Um, I can't say it, the Mamertine dungeon, the lowest region of that prison where the refuse would collect at the bottom. He was with his colleague Luke 
And we understand this is a different type of sentence. He was, he was charged with sedition, you know, against Rome because of his beliefs. Just imagine this guy. Three to four big, huge missionary journeys, 13 books of the Bible written, hundreds of people come to faith. What do I say? So along with 2 Corinthians, this is his most personal letter. He's more reflective. He's almost pushing 70. He's served God for about 40 years. And he's thinking, what do I tell Timothy? It's very personal. In the first couple of verses, it's very obvious. Verse 2, he tells him he's his beloved child. Verse 3, he tells him he prays for him all the time. Verse 4, he makes it clear that he misses him dreadfully. And at the end, chapter 4, he's saying, I want you to come as quick as you can while you still, while there's a chance to see me, to be with me. So listen to chapter 3, verse 14. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of. Because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. I want you to keep doing what you've been doing, what we've been doing together. But he's saying it is such a privilege. We should stop and recognise. Paul's saying what a privilege it is to be acquainted with the Bible when you're young. There's actually a lot of people in this building today who would have that same story. But he's saying, Timothy, I'm about to finish the race and I want you to finish strong. I want you to continue what we started. And he's saying, what you're convinced of. I want you to take what you know that you know that you know and pass it on to other people. That's what this is about. Basically, this whole letter is about passing the Christian faith on to the next generation. In fact, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul's thinking four generations out. It's an amazing statement. 2 verse 2, he says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So he's saying what you've heard from me pass on to others, we're going to pass on to others. He's thinking four generations out. It's it's a four-generation plan for passing, discipling the next generation. And he's not primarily talking about parenting. He doesn't even have kids of his own. He's talking about passing it on. He doesn't just look forward, he looks back. This is very important. Verse 5, he says, And I'm reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded also lives in you. He uses an affectionate term. It's Grandmama Lois. He's retracing the ancestry of this guy's faith and saying, I want you to remember where this came from, and now you've got to pass it on to others. And so, look, it's in that context that he gives this guy, Timothy, this young guy, three things to focus on in keeping what's been entrusted to him and passing it on. It's faith, suffering and grace. Focuses on faith, suffering and grace, which means God's undeserved favour. Three things, and this is crucial. So look at verse 5. He says, I'm reminded of a genuine and sincere faith that I saw. I saw it in your grandmother, in your mum, and I saw it in you. And this may be, feel like unnecessary to say, but if you want to think about passing on your faith, he's saying this is not unnecessary to say. It's actually essential that you think about that there's something tangible that's seen in your life, however imperfectly, that you're living a faith that can be seen. He said, I saw a genuine faith in them. Because let, let's face it. In in Christian homes, there's a lot of talk. And by the way, there should be. But kids need to see it. 
They need to see what it looks like. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What's it? Does it work? What happens when things go wrong? Kids need to see it. I always suggest do a ratio of speak once, live it out ten times. If you live with people and you're concerned about their picking up your faith, say it once and live it out ten times because they need to see it, not just talk it. And, and the other thing it's pressing into, isn't it true that we, we don't do what we're told but we do do what we're shown? Is that not true? It's true for kids. Actually, it's embarrassingly true for your own kids. <laughs> the other day, Lachlan walks to the fridge. He doesn't know I'm behind him. Opens it up, grabs apple juice off the cap, and, he, and I go, hey, what are you doing? He just about drops the bottle. And his sister goes, Dad, you learned that from you. <laughs> well, that's right. <laughs> Lucky he's the only one who drinks apple juice, but... That's right. You learned that from me. Doesn't matter. You, you pick up what you're shown more than what you're told. It's an important thing. And, and I want to say something about this. This two things. This is not a guarantee, and it's not a threat. It's not a guarantee. There is no way, as, I, as far as I am concerned, that I'm going to preach to you a three-point how-to sermon to have the perfect Christian family. Not a chance. In fact, I think it's heresy. I think it's against what the Bible says, right? You're never going to get that from me. But we know for a fact there's plenty of families with awesome Christian parents and not all their kids are believers. Is that not true? So this saying this isn't a guarantee. The other thing, it's not a threat. This doesn't mean because you're not a believer, your kids can't be Christians. Does that make sense too? He's just saying something that's very true that we often do what we're shown more than what we're told. And this comes out in mainstream non-Christian research. So in the archives of the Association of Religion in the UK, they look at the correlations between children um, being active in their, their parents' faith as adults, and they say far and away the main influence is parents who practice what they preach and preach what they practice. And the correlation, this was a landmark study, was 82%. Wow. But what they mean by 82% is families that choose to talk about this stuff at home, naturally. They, they hold the importance still of their own beliefs and values and they're involved in their local faith community. Does that make sense? The reason I said that is because sometimes... Like part of the reality is we have families and, and, and there's a lot of pressure in a Western church where we say, oh, yeah, it's the parents' issue. <laughs> we feel far less responsibility for someone else's kids, don't we? If you're a Christian, you shouldn't, it shouldn't be that way. But the truth is parents have an awful lot of pressure, even the pressure more than what they just put on themselves from, from us as well. This should be actually an encouragement to you because Frankly, a lot of people are intimidated by the idea, I've got to bring these kids up. That's the hardest thing because they don't come with batteries. They don't, you know. And, and, and the other thing is, I've got to talk about this stuff. And maybe you struggle, you, you feel tongue-tied when you talk about the Bible or faith, sex, whatever, you feel overwhelmed with this. This should tell you, this, that research digs into the fact that faith is caught more than taught. You've heard that line? I think it's actually more true than not. The other thing that's very important to notice here is that despite uh, Paul's imminent death and Timothy's obvious cowardice and timidity, 
In verse 14, he's not only he's confident, not just he's confident that the Holy Spirit will guard what's entrusted to Paul as much as he's challenging Paul to, to, what, to guard what's entrusted to him. This is very important. In other words, God's actually at work in this even when it doesn't feel like God's at work in this thing. And this is very important for you to take seriously. And it's a massive encouragement to parents and all of us really. So early on in my mum's marriage, my dad came, came up to her one day and said, I'm, I'm not going to church anymore. This is not up for discussion. I'm stepping out of the kids' work I do. We're not having a conversation about it. And you'll be offended by his language. He said, I forbid you to be involved in any Christian ministry and I forbid you to read with the kids, do devotions and pray with them. That's it, walks off. Now I know some of you are horrified that <laughs> that was the type of relationship let me say something about my mum up front. She struggled with fear big time. Timothy struggled with fear. In, in fact, you can know from this passage that you can be a Christian and struggle with fear, right? She didn't know that you actually could say, oh, hold on, Alec, no, not a chance, pal. She didn't know that that not only was right, but you could do that. And, and, and so she would come back from women's Christian conferences, and just feel demoralised. In the 70s, 80s, every second book was five ways to this, three ways to this. How-to books were very popular then. And she would come back and say, what do I do? It was a, the bottom fell out of her world. God, I, I did my best to marry a guy in the church, a Christian guy, I've been faithful to you. What's going on? And how am I going to love the? How am I going to bring these kids up? I'm not allowed to read and pray because he, he, he said you get too, they get too close to you and not me. <laughs> and, and, and so what do you do? We, we found all her, all her awards from Bible college. 80-something was her lowest mark. Most of them, one of them only had eight. The rest were like 92, 91, 97, 98. She was a gifted Bible student and teacher. In later life, flourished in ministry. But in this decade, what do I do? And so as an adult, she said, oh, I stuffed up, right? I, I failed you guys. And we said, not a chance, Mum. My sister and I said, no way, because we saw it. <laughs> we saw a sincere and genuine faith. We, we, you're not perfect. That's not the point. We saw it. And that actually changed the ball game for us. We didn't have to have all the bells and whistles. Does that make sense? You've got to know God's at work even when it doesn't look like it. And so when he highlights the reality of faith as being essential, he's not just saying faith that people can see. There's two elements of faith he brings up. And the first one, faith is synonymous with belief. Okay, So if you cross the line of faith, when you believe in God, the most foundational level of faith is belief. And, and actually for many of you it's traumatic. And the re, one of the reasons why it's very difficult is because God's so different to us. God, God actually is saying, I want to love you with an unconditional love. I love you without condition. 
We're not used to that thing. In fact, that messes us up. We want love with condition. We want the person to say, you've met the condition. I don't know, young married couples, you may have had a conversation similar to this, and this is like uh, typical of an early conversation, my marriage with Martine. And uh, so there might have been a question, something like, um, so why do you love me, Martin? Now, I'm just going to say, you never answer that question. It's a trap. (laughs) She'll hear, she won't hear what you say, she'll hear what you didn't say. Every time. That's just how it is. So, like, my best efforts at unconditional love, listen, I I, I love you for no reason at all. Yeah, that sounds. Oh, you love me for no reason at all. Uh, No, 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 no. What, What I mean is, there is no reason that I love you. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. So, there is nothing about me that makes you love me. Right, so obviously Martine wanted, not unconditional, she wanted conditional love, right? In fact, actually, that's what she got from me, conditional love too, to be honest. We're not used to that. We don't know what to do when someone says, I love you without condition, like verse 9, I love you not because of anything you've done. I love you without condition is what God says. Because if there were conditions, you couldn't meet them anyway. So if you've crossed the line of faith, if you've gone... You, you have stepped into belief that God is good, that he's for you, that he sees you, and you matter to him. Simple as that. And I don't think it's just faith in God. It's a change in faith about you. It's so significant. It's actually, you're saying, hey, I don't care what anyone else says. I don't even care what I say about myself. No, I don't care what my, the evidence of my past says, but God says I created you in my image And I don't just say I love you, um, he shows it by stepping into history and dying for me so I can can live. So the foundation of faith is stepping into the belief of that. Does that make sense? Let me read verse 9 and 10. This is how Paul describes what God's done for us. This is huge. He says, he has saved us and called us to a holy life. Here's that word. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. His grace was given in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and brought life. You stop and think about what this says. This is his description of the gospel. Paul gives us four word pairs to help get what God's done for us. He goes, you've been saved and called, right? He says, not because, but because. Not because of anything you've done, but because of his purpose and grace. He says, grace has been given and grace has been revealed. Get this. He says it was given before the beginning of time. It means God has always been motivated in love towards you and it was revealed when Jesus came. And the last pair, he destroyed death, brought life. Paul has just described the gospel completely in terms of the action of God. And he, and he even says at the beginning of the letter, it, it's out of his purpose and grace. He says, Paul and Paul, an apostle which means a sent one of Christ Jesus by the will of God. His life emanates from the mind of God, he's saying. Anything good in his life has come from God. Now, it's very easy when you think about the mission of the church to think it's been done for us. And actually to wrongly talk about this is, okay, 
If God wants it to happen, it will happen. <laughs> if God wants this person saved or that to happen, it will happen. I just have to let it happen. That's actually a heresy. Because <laughs> in this same letter, we don't just get the extravagant love of God, we get this dynamic call on this guy. Verse 6, he says, I'm reminded of your life. He says, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God. You need to stoke the fire of your own faith. And what he's really saying is, don't just sit around and bask in the grace of God. He's saying this has got to mean something. In fact, he's saying in in modern terms, you need to maximise your potential. Your call to maximise your opportunities, your resources, your time, your relationships for what God has for you. It's actually a huge thing. I hope you've picked up. If we're on this idea of faith, we've just passed the foundation of belief and we've moved into the realm of possibilities. We've moved into the realm of what you can see and touch of real life. If the first element of faith is, is belief, the next element is trust. Can I actually trust God with my life? You know, Timothy, the word timidity, it says here in verse 7, he tells him the spirit of God, as God gave us, does not make us timid. That's a weak word, weak translation. It's, it, it, it's more um, gutless in slang. <laughs> it's a lack of courage, that's the meaning of the word, to, to run off the battlefield. Basically, this part of faith is about Timothy learning to stand his ground. Jesus stood his ground for him on the cross. And he's saying, you're called to stand your ground in spite of what's going and in spite of your fears. Now, can we be honest for a second? We're in church. Let's be honest for a moment. Don't you struggle with you're trying to trust God and it often doesn't work. You're trying to make this life work, and not only does it work, there's frustration in there because someone has told you, if you have faith, you've got the leg up. <laughs> if you have faith, it's your defining advantage. Have you heard that sort of language? It's a load of rubbish. It's, it's actually counterintuitive. If you are going to live into this idea of trusting God with your life, It's actually standing in a place where you trust God that who you're becoming is more important than what you're accomplishing. It's a whole different ballgame, what God's trying to do in us than we often think. Because, see, we're, we're saying, hold on, God, my life is passing me by. You will feel like a tortoise in a race of hares because there's other people who will actually, they say, if you have faith, you'll get the girl, you'll get the job. No, other people are probably going to get the job first. A narcissist interviews very well. In fact, they're a low-risk hire for a company. The fact is, you're not necessarily going to win. If you're in cycling, you've got no hope because doping is everywhere. The fact is, you get what I mean? If, if who you're becoming is more important than what you do, then this is actually not so simple because God's going to work deal with you. You're like, oh, I don't want you to do with me. I need faith to succeed, to move forward. To win. Look, look what verse 7 says. It says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, 
but gives us power, love and self-discipline. If you don't understand this language, this is character language in these books. He's saying God is going to give you the capacity to stand. In fact, this is God sharing the attributes of who he is in his character with us. They say actually that the words power, love and self-discipline represent power, the kingly, the priestly and the prophetic ministry of Jesus. That the person of Jesus is what God wants to give you, his character. Does that make sense? See, I want to challenge you on this because when you start thinking about passing on the face of the next generation, whatever the age group, it doesn't matter. Primary school kids, high school, people, young adults, who are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, I miss anyone, it doesn't matter the age group. This is passing on the faith. We can get so hooked on the technique. I don't know how many techniques you can buy about how to pass it on how to bring up your kids, how to um, develop a leader, how to disciple people. Method, 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 method. Paul isn't at method yet. <laughs> you get what I mean? He said faith is essential, belief is fundamental, but actually who you're becoming in your character, this is what God's Spirit's going to be doing. The Holy Spirit is mentioned all over this passage and book. I don't think you believe me enough. I've got an illustration to help you think this through. My two favourite fruits, right? Bananas first. The reason why I don't think you get it is because I don't think you recognise essentially what God does and essentially what we do. And here's my first example. When you shop... You go and buy these and think you're buying bananas. I reckon you're really buying banana peels. Because the fact is, you don't put it on the weighing scale and go, hold on a sec, hold on a sec, let me check. <laughs> yep, good. You don't, you don't pull it off and, oh no, bad one, I'm not buying that one. You don't, do you? Essentially, you're buying a banana peel, if you think about it. You wouldn't know. Can I have a volunteer who looks like they want to catch it so I don't get sued? Can we have a volunteer? I'm going to throw this. Who wants to catch it? Okay. You ready, Leslie? Nice catch. So it's... Oh, hold on. It could be banana pudding. Who knows? But now, just hold it. I uh, want you to stand up for us, if that's okay. This is Leslie. And, and, and so, she's... what do you think you've got in your hand? Be honest. Okay. Now, honestly, I think you're not cynical enough. <laughs> so, because... We're actually not sure yet. So I think you've got a banana peel, but why don't you open it and give it a, have a look and see what it looks like it is and tell us what you think. By the way, we haven't set this up. Is that right? We didn't talk before this thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What do you reckon you got there, Leslie? Healthy banana? Okay. So again, I think she's not sceptical enough. This could be synthetic. This could be, you know, so can you have a little bite if you're not allergic and just... <laughs> What do you reckon? <laughs> it's a banana. Give me a clap. That's awesome. She was willing to do that. And also, you're welcome to eat all through the talk. All good. Here's the thing. The reason why you would never do that at the checkout is because you know when God creates, he creates with integrity. So what is communicated on the outside does reflect what's on the inside. But when what we create lacks integrity as humans, what we do is want to put a cover over and hide what's inside. That's called hypocrisy. You know it's true. But when God creates, he creates 
with integrity. So the outside actually communicates what's on the inside. So Leslie knew it was a banana. My favourite fruit. We have a volunteer. (laughs) Anyway, so quickly let me know, how do you choose a good one of these at the shop? What do you do? Huh? You smell it? Oh, I never thought of that. Oh, you knock on it? And what do you do? What are you, what are you doing? Why are you knocking on it? Hey? What are you doing? You're listening to it? What are you listening for, mate? Oh, okay, it's hollow. Right. <laughs> you all look educated. <laughs> so you're telling me you go to the shop and you knock it and you listen and if it sounds like there's nothing in there, you buy it. <laughs> But the reason why we don't have to chop that thing open to check if there's watermelon flesh is because you know when God creates, he creates with integrity. What we create lacks integrity. What God creates reflects what's on the inside. And so the reality is, this is bigger than one sentence, but when he says in verse 7, the spirit God gave us gives you power, love and self-discipline, that's an inner reality. Does that make sense? Where it says fruit in the New Testament, it's talking about what the Spirit of God is going to do in your character. So that the inside has greater integrity with the outside. That's what God's always going, going to do. And then, so when we think about this reality of making, one of the popular Christian words is making disciples that make disciples. Let's be very clear on one very important thing. You've got to drill down leadership beneath gifts Uh, competencies, abilities, down to what is underneath. And the truth is character always leads. Character always leads. This guy is charged to develop leaders who are going to pass on the faith to other people who are leaders who can... Character always leads. The problem with many of us, we get satisfied in, in, in a murky middle. I'm better than the devil. I've improved... Can I just make a very clear statement? One of the reasons why the Christian church is actually not growing well in many places around the West is not because they don't have the right system or or the right method or strategy. It's because they've allowed evil to dominate in the body of Christ. Evil has power to lead and neutral will not overcome evil. Character always leads. Does that make sense? The book of 2 Timothy is also a warning. At the end of our chapter, Paul lists names. He names people. He commends people, but he talks in sadness about some who've left him. He says he doesn't say why. There's some who are ashamed to be connected to an inmate who's their main evangelist. And there's some who abandoned the faith. Now, I don't know what you do when you hear that stuff. But the reality is, we usually go, I'm the exception to the rule, and so is my church. But that's not the truth. The church I came from, I grew up, I was a little kid there. Uh, There was a gentleman who had a wonderful family, a whole bunch of kids, fostered children as well. He was a dynamic leader in the kids' work. He even did... He was the type of person who did exciting talks. Kids, uh, my best mate, said, I remember illustrative talks on things. 
But sadly, he devastated his family and the church when he ran away with his foster daughter. The reality is character leads. And what the Spirit of God is always going to do. And if we're serious about this thing of passing the faith on, we need to pay attention far less to people's gifts and, and be focused on who we're becoming. Does that make sense? If you read the, the first chapter of, of Thessalonians, it's an amazing chapter. And Paul talks about the church in Thessalonica becoming like renowned for their faith around in, in, the, in the world, around Macedonia. And, and, and the amazing thing he says about it, he says um, nothing about structure, nothing about strategy, but talks about who they're becoming in Christ. The Holy Spirit is always going to press on your character. So God is inviting us to become like him in his character. I mean, just stop and think about what it would be if God was all-powerful, all-knowing and all-present without his character. You should be um, very happy that I'm not all-powerful because on a bad day, you wouldn't be here. (laughs) I'm wondering how many of you would still be married if you were (laughs) all-powerful. You'd bring him back. (laughs) What would it be like if God was all present but emotionally needy? I need to be with you. (laughs) The reason why we love being the presence of God is because he's a great and marvellous giver. So God, is, when it comes to what God's going to do in us to help us stand, it's faith to believe that who God's turning us into is more important than what you're accomplishing. The other thing that's very clear in this passage is the reality of suffering is a part of the deal. It's, it's a very important connection. Verse 8, he says, So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or me as prisoner. Rather, join me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Verse 11, And of this gospel I was appointed as a herald, an apostle, and a teacher. That's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet this is no cause for shame. So there's a connection between suffering and shame. But there's a connection between actually sharing the gospel, passing the faith on to the next generation, and suffering. He says, join me in suffering. Chapter 3 says, anyone who wants to live a godly life will suffer. And this is significant. This, This says something about the substance of your faith if you actually suffer. I heard a story this week about a a pastor who started a church in a region and was very discouraged when he went and talked to the local pastors as he was doing the initial thing. And his was more of an expressive church, like um, people might say a charismatic type uh, congregation. And and they just dismissed him straight away. said, you're happy clappy. He actually had this really great line. He said, well, it's better than humpy grumpy. (laughs) But they they stereotyped him. They said, listen, just because you're more expressive, you just want to be happy all the time. You just think there's nothing, you know. And they weren't that type of church. This is what he said. He said, And then we got a few older saints that stuck with us and started dying. And then he said, if you think this is flaky, watch how our people suffer and die and cling to the Lord, and then you'll know it has substance to it. People watch you when you hit a bump. Young people watch you. In fact, every generation. 
during your 80s, people in their 70s watch what you do when you hit the bumps at, seven, at 80. People in their 60s watch you in your 70s. People in their 50s, you just go down. Young people who have kids, they need to be around older people who've had kids. <laughs> people who are raising teenagers need to be around people whose kids have grown up. People who aren't retired yet actually need to be connected with people who are retired. And little kids and teenagers need the wisdom of years. They watch what happens when you hit a bump. They watch if you just cover everything up and just pretend it's all fine. They they watch you if you decide to walk away from your, your faith when it's bad and come back when it's good. They watch, they see that. But they also watch you when you hit a bump and you grieve, you cry out to God, you worship in the storm, you you confess your sins, you ask for forgiveness when you failed, you hang on to God and hope there'll be a better day, there'll actually be an eternal future one day. They watch that. Let me say it has incredible substance. The testimony of someone who's suffered, it has weight to it, doesn't it? And and that's something why 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus are written in the particular ways they are. A lot of people put these together. Most most commentaries on these, they're called the pastoral epistles. They're sort of written in a similar language. They're written to these individuals in Ephesus and Crete, sort of a similar context, similar struggle, but quite distinct. And the way Jesus is described in each book is unique because of their situation. In 1 Timothy, Jesus is, is described in terms of his humanity as being the one mediator between God and man living on the earth. Because there's an emphasis in 1 Timothy's situation of what you need to do as a human and that we are the ones preaching to the ends of the earth at the high point of the book. That's awesome. In, 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 in Titus... The way Jesus is described in that book is as saviour, as God is as saviour, because he's placed with God, co-equal with God. This is to undermine the Cretan mythologies, that God has showed up. There's been an epiphany of God. But in 2 Timothy, the word Lord is used to describe Jesus 16 times. Because if the theme of your life that you're stepping into is suffering, you need to know who's in charge. Who is the Lord? Do you know what I mean? I hope that's an encouragement. The last thing is, I think, obvious. We talked about it a bit, but he says, when it comes to passing on the faith, grace, the unmerited love of God, this is the other big thing. Not just because we're all born legalists, kids are legalists, that's not fair! I need, you know, they want a referee and they want it their way. But it's more than that. We're told to be a herald. Paul's life is a picture of Timothy's life, which is meant to be a picture of our life. Sometimes in the Christian church, some some research shows that there's five... We've created language to accommodate disinterest and apathy. Some churches, maybe including our history, have five, at least five layers of calling. Called to salvation, to be saved. Called to to, to make Jesus your Lord called to full-time service, called to local missions, called to foreign missions. Can I tell you, when we make heroes out of people that the book of Acts says is an ordinary Christian life, we undermine the challenge 
of leadership and the challenge to invest in the next generation. The longest sermon in the book of Acts, 42 verses, I think, I can't remember, of Stephen, the first martyr, he was a guy that said, you're pretty faithful, you've got God's spirit in you, you can help wait tables. And then he gets the longest sermon. That's the ordinary Christian life being lived out. Does that make sense? You're all called to be missionaries, it's just a question of location. You're all called to be heralds, to talk about the grace factor. And so I want to end reading this beautiful from this beautiful book that James mentioned as a resource in light of that. We're talking about the next generation. So I'm going to read two or three pages, which is very, very short. It's a summary of the life of Paul. It's beautifully illustrated. So let me read this, and we'll end with this. A new way to see. Of all the people who kept the rules, Saul was the best. I'm good at being good, he'd tell you. He was very proud and very good, but he wasn't very nice. Saul hated anyone who loved Jesus, who travelled around looking for them. He wanted to catch them and put them in prison. He wanted everyone to forget all about Jesus. He didn't believe Jesus was the rescuer, and he didn't believe Jesus was alive either. You see... Saul had never met Jesus. So one day, Jesus met Saul. Saul was on his way to Damascus when suddenly a dazzling light flashed like lightning. It was brighter than the sun. It was too bright. Saul shielded his eyes and fell to the ground. He heard a loud voice. It was too loud. It gave Saul a headache. Saul, Saul, said the loud voice. Why are you fighting me? Lord, Saul answered, who are you? I am Jesus, said the voice. When you hurt my friends, you are hurting me too. Saul's whole body trembled. Go to the city, Jesus said. I'll tell you what to do. Saul opened his eyes. He couldn't see. His helpers had to hold his hand and lead him like a little child. Saul was blind for three whole days, and yet it was as if he was seeing for the very first time. Meanwhile, there was a man called Ananias who loved Jesus. Jesus came to him in a dream and said, Go to Saul and pray for him, and I'll make him see again. Ananias knew about Saul and how he hated Jesus' followers. Lord, he's come to hurt us. But Jesus told Ananias, Saul is the one I've chosen to tell the whole world who I am. So Ananias went to Saul. Brother Saul, Ananias said. It was Jesus you met on the road. And Ananias prayed for Saul. Suddenly, Saul could see again, but he saw everything differently. He wasn't mean anymore. He even changed his name from Saul to Paul, which means small and humble, the very opposite of proud. And do you know what Ananias' name means? The Lord is full of grace. Grace is just another word for gift, which is funny, because that's just what Paul's message was all about from then on. It's not about keeping rules, Paul told people. You don't have to be good at being good for God to love you. You just have to believe what Jesus has done and follow him. Because it's not about trying, it's about trusting. It's not about rules, it's about grace. God's free gift that cost him everything. What had happened to Paul? He met Jesus. 
Paul got a new job. He called himself a servant and travelled everywhere telling everyone about Jesus. He got shipwrecked, shipwrecked three times. He even ended up in prison. God loves us, he wrote from prison. Nothing can ever, no, not ever, separate us from the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always forever love of God he showed us in Jesus. And so it was, just as God promised Abraham that dark night all those years before, the family of God's children grew and grew until one day they will come to number more than even all the stars in the sky. So when you want to think about passing on your faith, the way to keep what's been entrusted is faith that believes and trusts, being willing to suffer, and talking about that. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you love us with our condition. And we ask that this will become the theme of our life. We ask that for those of us in the room who wonder if, if this is real, that you would grant faith where there's doubt. You would help us say, Jesus, I give you my life. And those of us who know you, Father, we ask that we would be called back to what is undergirding everything you do for us, everything our life's about. And that we'll recognise that what you're doing is changing us to making us more like you. So we ask that you'll help us to keep our eyes on the main thing. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.